Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, we're welcoming back two Politicology favorites returning to the roundup. Live in the flesh is Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics Program at the center-left policy organization Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, it's good to see you. Welcome back. So nice to see you in 3D. And joining us from New York City is the inimitable and highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. It's great to see you. Great to see you. I wish I was there with you guys. We wish you were here too, but soon, I hope. On this week's Roundup, first, reports that the Department of Justice is opening an investigation into Donald Trump and Don Jr.'s texts about overthrowing the government, followed by the rise in crime across the country, the New York subway attack, and Joe Biden's move to regulate ghost guns. Then, how the still-rising inflation and interest rates will be felt in wallets and at the ballot box. And finally, we'll take a peek at what you're watching under the radar. Then, when we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about the extremely consequential recent decision signaling the rise of the shadow docket and what it means for the future of the Supreme Court. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast with extra episodes and explainers, strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology Show in that app and tap the button to try it for free. Or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. So last week, the Washington Post revealed that the Department of Justice has taken steps to investigate the disgraced, twice impeached former President Donald Trump over the removal of presidential records. In early January, the National Archives and Records Administration retrieved 15 boxes of White House records from Mar-a-Lago, which included communications records, gifts, and letters from world leaders, and some records that were marked classified and top secret. After the Washington Post reported on the record retrieval, the House Oversight Committee launched an investigation into why those boxes of records were vacationing at Trump's Palm Beach estate. Committee Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney requested a detailed inventory of what was in the boxes from the National Archives. And so far, the archives have not fulfilled that request at the direction of the Justice Department. And last week, Maloney accused the Justice Department of interfering with the investigation in a letter she wrote to Attorney General Merrick Garland. That probe is still in its very early stages. The Washington Post reported that it's unclear the extent to which the DOJ has reviewed and assessed the contents of the boxes. But the Justice Department has been communicating with the archives about their inquiry, and the FBI has not officially confirmed or denied the existence of an investigation. So, Lene, why don't you lead off here? How did you react to this news? Because it's the first time we have confirmation that there is an investigation happening, correct? Yeah, I think there's confirmation that the DOJ is talking to the archives and that they don't want to give the documents over publicly to a bunch of people in Congress. And so I think that's very strong evidence, if not complete confirmation, because I don't think DOJ responded to questions from the reporter uh, that there is, in fact, a criminal investigation going on. Otherwise, why wouldn't a Democratic administration give a Democratic Congress access to these documents? Um, But I will say my first reaction was just like the head exploding emoji because 
just in case you don't remember, 2016, uh, really consequential election in our nation's history, um, came down to the fact that Hillary Clinton had a private server on which she was uh, supposedly having some sort of secret documents um, that were classified. Uh, so I just, I, I just wanted to be a fly on Hillary Clinton's wall when this came out because I assume that violence ensued. Like I assume <laughs> that she had to go to one of those like smash rooms where you can like like beat up a car or smash plates Do you or something. think she has a smash room she, like at her I house? I hope to God because girl needs it with this. And it is like, I mean, everything with the Trumps are hypocrisy, but this is just like so rich um, that after targeting Hillary Clinton for so long for this thing that didn't actually threaten anyone because it was on a private server in her house that no one else had access to, he's just got like stuff lying around while, you know, foreign leaders and other people are wandering around his estate. And he's like, oh, cool. Do you want to see my boxes of classified docs? <laughs> so I really hope if Hillary Clinton has not been to the smash room, I would like to start a GoFundMe to build her one. <laughs> In this moment, because it's the only thing I can do to respond. I knew we were going to have fun today. Lene, uh, what if we made Mar-a-Lago Hillary's own personal smash? Oh, my God. <laughs> that is a genius idea because you know he has some kind of gaudy stuff down there. Oh, man. That she would be so happy to Imagine smash. the tour. Oh, Imagine the, the grand tour. The gold toilets <laughs> that she could smash with a sledgehammer. So, Susan— Look, I am. I imagine there are a lot of people who saw this news, me included, and said, "Yes, finally, this is going to be the thing they nail Trump for, right?" Like Al Capone getting arrested for tax evasion, uh, but he's avoided facing prosecution so far. And as we get closer and closer to 2024, uh, you know, you have to wonder if there's a political upside for Trump if he's under investigation, right? Will it help him rile up his supporters and get more money out of them? How does he play this news? All right. Um, well, there's a lot to unpack there. So first, I agree with you when you say like there's just one more thing about Donald Trump and like when is he going to be held accountable? And yes, he must be held accountable. But I also do wonder if the American public, I don't want to say has had enough of all these stories, but they either want to know yes or no. What do you got? Don't give me the reports. Don't tell me investigating. Either you got it or you don't. And don't come to me until you have a conclusion. And I think that all of this noise actually helps Trump because it's, oh, yeah, one more thing they're looking at. Oh, they're looking at here. They're looking at there. And he does use that to his advantage to play the woe is me candidate, which he always likes to play the victim, as we know. So I, I think we have to be careful as far as what we demand of the DOJ. I rather have them do a good job. And I realize that time is not on their side. But having all this news doesn't help the fight either. It just doesn't help the cause. And we need to keep breaking through all of this noise. What's happening in New York, what's happening in Atlanta. I mean, there, there's just a lot at play here. Donald Trump, though, what's interesting is he had a rally in North Carolina last Saturday. And at 2016, he had about 15,000 people attend a similar rally. How many people were there on Saturday? Thousand to 1,500. People, mm. people do not want to hear 
him reliving 2020 all over again. And this is a conversation all three of us have had many, many times. If the the people won't follow him if he doesn't give them something to follow and they don't want to follow 2020. They will find, you know, another crazy wackadoo conspiracy theory QAnon person to, to go to rallies for. So Donald Trump has to be careful how much he spends on his time not only trying to relitigate the press, but also trying to look like the victim because he's got to start looking forward if he wants to look strong in a primary because I do believe he is weakening among the base. Yes, there will always be diehard Trumpers, but that doesn't mean that the Republican Party as a whole is going to be diehard Trumpers. Okay, well, we're not done with the wackadoo theme yet. And by the yeah. way, I love oh. when you use the word wackadoo. You <laughs> oh, know how I love Donald that. Trump Jr. with the tinfoil hat and the I wackadoo. know, exactly. <laughs> so over the weekend, CNN reported that Jr. texted then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows while votes were still being counted, telling Meadows that they had, wait for it, quote, operational control to ensure the former guy would get a second term. And before sending Meadows multiple plans for overruling the American people and stealing the election, Don Jr. wrote, quote, this is what we need to do. Please read it and please get it to everyone that needs to see it because I'm not sure we're doing it, end quote. Don Jr. went on to outline a plan so insane, it's actually pretty much the plan that the campaign used. The strategy was to file lawsuits and advocate for recounts to stop battleground states from certifying their election results and asking Republican-controlled state houses to put forward slates of Trump electors, despite Biden winning more votes in that state's election. And if that failed, Don Jr. suggested Republican lawmakers in Congress should just vote to reinstall Trump as president on January 6th, despite the American people voting for his opponent. With punctuation so bad, it could only be written by a Trump University graduate. Don Jr. wrote, quote, we have operational control. I know I told you we'd have fun. Quote, we have operational control, total leverage, moral high ground. POTUS must start second term now. End quote. There are random uh, capitalizations in there that I won't uh, I won't belabor. How did you uh, both react to these texts? Because this was obviously before Lene anyone had called the race for Biden. Uh, so, what were you both th- you know making of how early in the process they started coup planning? Essentially, I guess I'm not surprised by anything. I'm certainly not surprised by anything that wackadoo Trump Jr. does. Um, It's hard to know, like, who's the bigger wackadoo. I'm like, I think maybe Trump Jr. is worse, but dumber. Like, I'm not I'm not quite sure who's more dangerous, but there nothing surprises me with him anymore. What I did think was surprising was uh, the fact that he his own lawyer in responding to it basically said, Oh, but he forwarded that text message. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. Like, is that is that cool then? That's, That's cool, okay. cool. It wasn't his original idea. He just forwarded the coup to the chief of staff. It wasn't his own message. And I was like, "That's the best you have." Like not even to That's... deny it, just say, 
No, but it was a forwarded message. Someone else wrote it. He just forwarded (laughs) it. He just forwarded it to the chief of staff. I was like, on what planet do you think that makes it okay? That's in no way a defense. It's not. Like, I don't know who wrote it, but you forwarded it to the chief of staff. So, you know, this isn't like a chain email from my grandma. Like, I don't understand. (laughs) Well, on that note, I think the defense now is so Junior can fall into you know, favorite child one because Ivanka had already testified by the time they made that statement. So maybe he's just trying to feel like maybe I could become the number one child and, and my daddy will like me. Um, I do think that's part of the response. <laughs> um, it's not surprising that Donald Trump Jr. would fall into this loud noise in November. But what's also interesting to remember at that time, Donald Trump had not gone full coup yet. He was more in disbelief. Right. They had not right. gotten to that point. And it was only people like Junior, like the person who forwarded or sent him that text that he you know, was forwarding to Mark Meadows. And now we know Mark Meadows. There were a lot of people ginning up the you know, former guy at that time. And that is also very interesting to see how much in the works that was and that coup, which goes into the planning stages and what perhaps the president knew um, was happening and maybe didn't see being implemented right away. But it is concerning. But the other problem I have is like, Donald Trump Jr. is just dumb as a hammer. And I just can't give him much credit in planning anything like this, except again, just wanting to become, you know, just have his daddy like him. Yeah. Especially since I think that um, uh, Ivanka and Jared's interaction with the committee was characterized as cooperative, right? That was the word I remembered, cooperative, which means that daddy isn't going to like that very much. Uh, but if all the rest of them go to jail, yeah. does Tiffany become the favorite? Oh, is there any world in no, which she, Tiffany she becomes cannot. the favorite? Nope. nope. That's sad. No, don't sad forget. For you also have their, and I don't like talking, you know, I won't mention by name, but their, they, Melania and Donald Trump do have a son who could easily yeah. move into number one. There you go. That's That's the direction. So there's one more piece of news under this umbrella, though which is that the January 6th committee now says it has enough evidence. This is big, you guys. Has enough evidence to formally refer criminal charges against Donald Trump and his top advisors for conspiracy with intent to overturn the 2020 election. Refer it to the Justice Department. But members of the committee are still weighing whether the committee should do that. There is not consensus yet. Um, the committee has concluded that they have enough evidence to make the referral, but they aren't in total agreement about it, about whether they should do it. Now, the debate is over whether the referral would backfire and cause voters to perceive the Justice Department's investigation as tainted and politically motivated. And this is something that we've talked about before, because that's a, that, that is a very legitimate concern and debate to be had, given where we are. Now, um, you know, Part of the reasoning for the shift was the ruling from a federal judge in Central California a few weeks ago that found that it was more likely than not, I'm putting that in quotes, that Trump and and John Eastman had committed federal crimes. Some committee members and staff have argued that while they've compiled enough evidence to call for prosecution, the judge's order would actually carry more weight than their referral letter, since uh, the referral letter really has no legal impact. It's just a, here's the evidence, please investigate this. 
Elaine Luria has argued that the committee should refer any crimes it uncovers to the Justice Department and said they should not worry about the political ramifications. Now, that is my default position, right? That is that because that is the way it's supposed to work. That is the way you that is the schoolhouse rock version no, of no, no, how Ron, this should go down. Ron, right? I love you, but what? not necessarily. When it came to Nixon, all okay. they did was refer, they gave the report to DOJ. They did not make criminal recommendations to DOJ. They simply forwarded their report without making the recommendations of criminal charges. There is a nuance there that is really important to keep in mind because a lot of the folks from the Nixon era are saying in order to avoid that political conflict, you can still Mm. give the DOJ everything without the re- recommend, yeah. criminal recommendation. So I, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in like that, but it's a really That's, no, important that nuance. No, thank you. You're right. That's a, it, look, this is, this is not a very clear-cut, easy-to-decide thing. Now, listeners are probably going to be screaming at their phones right now or wherever they're listening saying, no, just send it over, like prosecute him, right? Of course, we all feel that way. But there's a, there's a, there's a very legitimate debate to be had here. Lene, I would love for you to, you know, enlighten us on all of the nuance here that they're considering and why it's important. Yeah, I think we have to remember what the roles are of the different players in this debate, right? So we have the January 6th committee. Its role is not to prosecute anyone. Its role is to figure out what the heck happened. And they are doing that, uh, you know, with uh, great vim and vigor. And hopefully at some point we will all be able to see um, the facts of what happened um, that horrible day. And then separately, the Department of Justice is the prosecutor. They're doing their own investigation. They get to see, you know, things that Congress wants to give them as well. But they make their own independent determination about whether or not anybody committed a crime and whether there is, in fact, a reason to prosecute someone. Now, I think that we will probably see some sort of um, public Justice Department criminal investigation per our conversation around um, the fact that they won't give some of the stuff they have back to Congress. Um, But the question is, when Merrick Garland, the attorney general, comes out and says, here is the the charges we're going to prosecute, here's the investigation that is unfolding, is it going to be more persuasive for him to say, I am doing this because a federal judge said it's more likely than not that someone committed a crime, or I'm doing this because Nancy Pelosi's Democrat-run committee told me I have to. That's the optics here, yeah. right? And so, yes, there. I understand uh, Elaine Luria is a um, member of Congress from uh, the the kind of heavily military area of Virginia, um, south of Virginia Beach. And she um, and she's a, a vet herself. And I think she's just like, we have to right. say the thing. Yeah. Right. But I also understand the idea that we want Merrick Garland to be able to be successful in whatever he's doing and to, you know, have uh, Tucker Carlson and everybody else be able to say that he's doing this at the instruction of yeah. a, a Democratic Congress versus, um, you know, uh, because our legal standards of our laws have been met, that seems really different to me strategically. So I think that's kind of what folks are weighing. Yeah. So I I think it's a, and I think it's a tough thing to weigh. Now, Susan, my question to you is whether they go, you know, whether they take the Nixon approach and just send a report or they send a formal referral of criminal charges, 
Do you think, because bearing in mind that what the committee does is ultimately political, right? Um, and the Justice Department may or may not incorporate it into their ongoing prosecution decisions, right? Is the nuance going to matter to the voters who would other, who would find this politically motivated, who would attack it uh, if it was, you know, um, deemed seen as a political attack? My question is, are do people care enough about the nuance to decipher between those two routes, or is any action against Donald Trump uh, ultimately going to meet the same reaction? Again, I want to emphasize what Lene said about the job of the select committee is to find out what happened, laid out what happened and make recommendations on how to, if necessary, to change things, what laws maybe need to be written, et cetera. It turns out that the idea of referring criminal charges is usually a result of a side story to the event, i.e., um, Mark Meadows being referred for refer because he would not answer a subpoena. So it, it was an an somewhat of an ancillary uh, part because he did not do that. It had nothing to do with the investigation itself. It sprung out of the investigation. So at the end of the day, I think that this country is so divided, you're going to see what happened. I think there's going to be a certain pe bunch of people who say like, enough already, I'm done. I don't care. We're done. I, even if it did happen, it didn't happen. I, I've, I've got gas prices to worry about. And then you have a third who are going to say he's guilty and a third, you know, and, and this the House didn't do enough, even though there's nothing they could really do. They can't, the select committee cannot jail anybody um, except for if they're in defiance of the, the House subcommittee in the sense of the subpoena, ironically, which they haven't done in over 100 years. Or, and then there's going to be like, ah, the Republicans who are going to say, well, I told you they couldn't find anything. And if they recommend something, it's just another witch hunt. What I am most concerned about right now, and yes, I'd like to, I'd like to have all the facts come out, but what's really, really important to me and one of the terrible effects of the Trump administration is that we have to let justice play out. The rule of law, it may not happen as quick as we want, and I understand the concerns about that as well, but we have to regain our faith in DOJ. We have to let it keep on rolling out. It's not going to make the difference, folks, and I know everyone's talking about it. Whatever they find, whatever Merrick Garland does, it's not going to change the 2022 elections. It's just not, okay? So put that aside. So there is still time, while the select committee may be disbanded by the Republicans, the data and the report will be forwarded to DOJ, whether it's with criminal invest charges or uh, recommendations or not. They will have to, either way, fully investigate. So let them keep doing it. They have a lot of things they are fully investigating right now. As we said, we have boxes of classified information yeah. just being handed out as coasters at, at Mar-a-Lago these days. And <laughs> <laughs> just to follow up on Lene. Here, have an intelligence report. Put your yeah, coffee on this, please. You get an intelligence report. You get an intelligence report. It's like <laughs> Oprah, you know, like everyone gets an intelligence report. Um, and that's really important. So I mean, yes. Yeah. 
just to go back to Susan's point, though, about how voters are going to respond, I would think part of that is, um, and maybe more important than whether this referral happens or not officially, is what are the criminal charges? that are being investigated, right? Because the thing that the federal judge ruled on, I believe, was that it was more likely than not that Eastman and and Trump um, tried to obstruct an official congressional proceeding. That sounds bad. I mean, it's it's different. It's not the seven people who died. Seven people died. Yeah. Like, so I feel like it also matters. Like, yeah. what are we asking? Yeah. Um, what are we investigating and, and saying he's responsible for? Because I would say, yes, he tried to obstruct a proceeding. But boy, that sounds technical yeah. for what I saw that happening that day, which was violence mm-hmm. and scary. And I knew people in the building and I'm texting them to say, are they OK? And they were not OK. It, it, it was mayhem. Yeah. So it's it seems a little too you know, sterile. too technical. Sterile yeah. is exactly the right word. So I, I think that that'll play into, and, yeah, and it'll play in for whether he's um, el- eligible to run again in 2024, which matters. Go ahead, Susan. Right. I was just going to, just to add on that, it's, it's that, but there are so many charges. So the question happens, if all the things we try to rightfully investigate the former president for. Okay, let's make sure, like, I don't want to make it seem like it's not important. We should be investigating all of the things. We're not talking about two to five charges. We're looking at potentially hundreds of criminal charges that can be made against the president and his cronies, in which case that becomes almost too much. Like, I think people would just like to know he's going to go face criminal charges for insurrection for starting a riot and, and, and creating the environment for the, for a coup. That would be great, but it's never going to happen that way. So again, I'm just more interested in making sure as a nation, we can trust our DOJ again. On Tuesday, all eyes were on a mass shooting on a subway train in Brooklyn 29 people were injured after a 62-year-old man opened fire on a Manhattan-bound subway train just before 8.30 a.m. as the train approached the 36th Street station. Donning a gas mask, he detonated a smoke canister before firing 33 bullets from a handgun, according to ABC News. Three teenagers were among the 10 people shot. This high-profile attack comes as we witness a national rise in violent crime and as Republicans highlight it as an election year issue. Less than 24 hours before the attack, Joe Biden held a Rose Garden press conference to announce a new pick to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and to unveil a new rule regarding ghost guns. Ghost guns, if you're not familiar, are untraceable firearms that don't have a serial number. They can be assembled from buy-to-build kits made you know, from other gun parts, or they can be 3D printed. And the new regulation focuses on the buy-to-build kits and requires that they be produced by licensed manufacturers and that anyone who purchases the kit will need to pass a background check, as they would if they were buying a normal firearm. It will also require a serial number to be printed on the gun kit's frame or receiver, which is the piece that uh, the other parts are attached to. These ghost guns accounted for 20% of all guns seized by police in San Francisco and 24% of all guns seized in Los Angeles in 2021. So, first of all, um, Susan, Democrats are going to be playing defense on rising crime 
on the whole heading into the midterms. And a lot of that comes from the rise in petty crime, for example, in California, where thefts under $950 are now misdemeanors, unlikely to be prosecuted, and some people are calling them de facto legal. But they do have a track record that puts them out ahead on gun violence. Um, So what are you making of the move to put gun policy at the center of their plans to fight rising crime? I get it, but I don't think it'll be effective. When that shooting happened on Tuesday in New York on a subway station, in a subway station, that puts the fear of God in every New Yorker and anyone else who rides mass transit around the country. It is beyond horrifying. It, it, it plays on this ongoing concern of subway riders. Let's not forget the day before someone was stabbed at four o'clock in the afternoon. There have been multiple stabbing attacks over the last year um, on, on subway cars in New York City. It's that fear that, for example, Eric Adams was able to use to ride in up no pun intended with ride, but to take to uh, election day in 2021, becoming the mayor. He is now facing 100, day, 100 plus days in horrible crime spree. And crime is up in every single division in New York City, up substantially, real crimes. So this is a real problem. I am all for gun safety. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love to see legislation. I just never see anything change unless it's an immediate response to an act. Take the shooting in Parkland. Within like three months, Governor then Governor Scott signed in legislation. I'm not saying it was enough, but there was a three-day waiting period. It raised the age from 18 to 21. There were looks at lookbacks into mental, those with mental health issues, buying guns. There was immediate action. If it didn't happen then, it was never going to happen. Um, we saw after Newtown, nothing happened on a federal level. I, I think this is unless the unless members of the of the Democratic Party take it local and bring their message locally, which I don't think they do nearly enough of, then I think it becomes a losing argument because people talking about gun safety while people are afraid just won't quite line up. I understand the argument, but. More people are concerned. More people want to have a gun when crime is high than want to be told they can't have one. So, Linnea, along the same lines, you uh, mentioned this report when you were on a couple of weeks ago, but your colleagues at Third Way created a report on the rise in murder rates since 2020 that doesn't align with the media narrative that the murder rate is a Democratic problem. In 2020, per capita murder rates were 40% higher in states won by Donald Trump than those won by Biden. Uh, Of the 10 states with the highest murder rates in the country, eight of them have voted for the Republican presidential nominee in every election this century. Um, One of the two that hadn't voted for Republican in every election was Georgia. Um, The average murders per 100,000 residents in states Trump won was 8.2 compared to 5.8 in states that Biden won. So I wonder, you know, when Biden used his State of the Union address to uh, push back on the, you know, the defund the police narrative by very emphatically saying fund the police, kind of like a read my lips moment. Um, He highlighted the schism for people who are paying attention to inter-democratic party politics, right? He highlighted the schism uh, between progressives and the majority of Democrats on crime. 
Do you think this move to change the focal point within the crime conversation, which is this big umbrella, right, uh, toward guns and away from police funding will help with cohesion inside the beltway and help shore up the Democratic base? No. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, first of all, this issue is always hard for me to talk about because I work on it. It's very personal to me. And I work with the Sandy Hook parents in the wake of that horrible massacre um, going door to door on the hill trying to convince people to do something. And so um, it didn't work then. And when it didn't work with five-year-olds who had been slaughtered, I got very jaded that we were going to do anything on this at the federal level. And um, part of it, so policy-wise, it makes sense, right? Part of the reason that the murder rates are higher in those red states is that there's more guns and less gun laws. There's also more poverty, which contributes to that. So there are a lot of contributing factors that make it the case that it is less safe to live in a red state than a blue state. It's also true in terms of cities. You know, you look at um, California, Bakersfield, the home of insurrectionist Kevin McCarthy, has a higher murder rate than either San Francisco or L.A., and it is run entirely by Republicans. So Republicans have used this narrative. It is not in any way attached to fact. Um, but I think persistently, and and what I've observed since the the tragedy that happened in Sandy Hook and watching that literally day by day um, slip away from our fingers in terms of opportunity to act, is that people feel like Democrats bait and switch them mm-hmm. on this issue. And so if it is um, Parkland, say it's Parkland, um, we are like background checks Mm -hmm. because we think that's the thing that can get through. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if that mass casualty happened because Because someone got Mm -hmm. a gun that they bought outside of, you know, in a private sale that wasn't requiring a background check. We immediately pivot to background checks because we think it's the thing we might be able to get. Because it's doable. It's doable. Even if it's unrelated. You know, we had actually a lot more traction right after Columbine trying to close what then was called the gun show loophole. Now most of those sales are done online, which Mm -hmm. wasn't even a thing um, at the beginning of this mass shooting era. Um, But the um, gun show loophole was almost closed then because it was directly relevant. It would have stopped Columbine Mm -hmm. because the killers in that instance tried to buy a gun at a licensed dealer, were not able to because they were underage, and then they went to a gun show, Mm. and then they were able to, and that is why those people died. If we do not have the direct nexus, people feel like we're trying to change the subject. And I worry that that is what's happening here. And now I I think the ghost guns thing, it's it's crazy how those, you know, those stats that you read, how pervasive they've become, because we weren't even talking about this issue until like, I think the first time we wrote about it was in 2017, maybe, Mm -hmm. because it just wasn't a thing, maybe 2016. Um, But the advent of 3D printers and these other technologies allow people to just make their own guns that are completely unmarked. And at that moment, there was a moment where we could have stopped it legislatively. And we did not. There was some bipartisan interest in doing so. Now Republicans won't even vote on a bill to make sure that, you know, people can't 3D print an assault weapon at their house completely untraceable. 
that's how bad things are right now in our federal politics is that we we can't even talk about ghost guns, which used to be like, this isn't an NRA issue. This is a technology issue. And no one wants a felon to be able to print an assault weapon at their house. That seems logical, but it's not anymore to Republicans in Congress. And so, yeah, it's just it, it feels um it feels like we're nibbling around the edges and it feels like we're a little bit changing the subject to a thing we can act on. And it's not that these regulations weren't important, but um, they, it didn't even address the 3D printed ones. Yeah, Lene, that's, you bring up a really good point on on action, because as we saw in the last Las Vegas massacre, you, even the former guy had a problem with bump stocks. Like there there was an, a, only a result like it's but it has to be so immediately acted on and unfortunately the 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 disaster has to be so horrific and you just have to wonder that if on the new york city subway incident if it's a miracle no one died but what happens if 30 people did would the reaction have been different when it comes to a voice for calling for more gun safety measures Let's just spend a minute on the politics of this then. Um, Susan, for lack of a better articulated question, what should Democrats do about the politics about of this, about the narrative of this? Um, or, you know, should they just pivot away from the issue altogether? Um, if you're advising, you know, the <laughs> capital T, capital D, the Democrats, what do you tell them to do? Well, I think you touch on what Lene talked about. And when you talk about crime and poverty and other issues, well, not crime, but poverty and other issues, you relate it to there's more guns here. Maybe you make some kind of connection, but you can't make it a focal point in the 2022 elections. It should be. It should be a focal point every day. I am a huge Second Amendment person, just for the record. I have... But I have to believe it has to be responsible. I think every gun should be registered. I don't think anyone under 21 should be able to have a firearm. I mean, there's a million things I would do to change the laws and still say I, I'm a Second Amendment person. But because and that's also important to recognize that's part of the culture. And Democrats always get a little like kind of queasy when they start wading into it, especially in purplish states, because there are a lot of Democrats who are also gun owners. And we can't make them that what happens is it turns into they're the villains and that just backfires so much on Democrats. So I wish I can say like it should be a front and center issue, but I think it's got to be an issue that's woven into somehow economics and poverty and the importance of, you know, helping people get out of it, whatever the administration wants to point to, to its economic successes. And, you know, it's a weak argument, but it's the best, you know, I, I don't see how making front and center helps. Lenny, I have a question for you on this. Um, are you a West Wing fan? Have we talked about that? Oh, we haven't okay. talked about it, okay. but it right. obviously okay. I'm a West Wing fan. This, it, I own every DVD of the West <laughs> okay. Wing, like old school before it was I on have, Netflix. I have all the warm obviously. fuzzies for the West yes. Wing and actually everything that Aaron Sorkin writes. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, there is this wonderful scene 
in, I think it was the first or second season, where Ainsley Hayes, and for fans who are uh, fans of the West Wing, you'll get this. If you're not, Ainsley Hayes is is the sort of token Republican that the Democratic White House hires, who's brilliant, kind of socially awkward, and um, and they learn a lot from her, even though they really don't get, they make, she makes them uncomfortable, right? So she's a really smart lawyer, but she's a Republican in a Democratic White House. And they're having a debate about guns. And I think she's talking to Sam Seaborn, uh, who was the press secretary, speechwriter, played by Rob Lowe, the handsome Rob Lowe. And she makes a point to Sam Seaborn that, um, which really landed very, very poignantly. And she said, did you ever stop to think for a minute, Sam, that you don't like people who like guns? And it's more about that than it is about the guns. And my question to you, it, which that resonated with me because I can sense that in the way that Democrats, capital D, talk about guns. And Susan made the point that many Democrats, especially in Midwestern states, especially in red states, own guns. And I wonder if there's any hope of moderating, modifying the rhetoric within the Democratic ecosystem to reflect that, um, to stop demonizing the people who do like guns, but not because they want to kill people or cause violence or do any criming. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's only going in a negative direction, honestly, for a couple of reasons. One is the sorting that we're seeing, right? So Democrats are more and more likely to move to or be in suburbs, inner suburbs or cities, um, Republicans in mm, rural mm-hmm. areas. Um, and that is more um, that, that is going more and more in that direction over time, in part because of the educational divide between non-college and college graduates that are now um, that is now persistent throughout voters of every single race. Um, where non-college voters are going towards the Republican Party in a way they hadn't in the past. So there's a lot of dynamics there. But suffice it to say, it feels very different to have a gun on a subway in New York City than to have a gun in Bemidji, Minnesota, where I grew up, where literally like open season hunting day was a day off of school because otherwise no one would come to school that day. And also none of the teachers would come. So it, it feels different. Right. And and your experience with guns is different. And that is only growing. And then you layer on top of that, there's been a big increase in in gun purchases, which there always is when there's a Democratic administration because people get scared like they're going to take my guns. Uh, But what we're seeing is more and more guns are being owned by fewer and fewer people. So fewer Americans own guns, particularly younger people, um, but the ones who do are collecting more and more and more. And so, you know, you'll go on armslist.com, which is the scariest place on the Internet. And, um, you know, there's a lot of scary places on the Internet, but it's up there. And um, you'll see somebody selling hundreds of guns from their personal collection. You know, they talked about this guy in in New York City. He actually lived in Philly, but um, the shooter, uh, he had a whole bunch of guns and a whole bunch of ammunition and also more back at his house in Philly. And so if that's the picture you have, it's not your, you know, your friend whose house you go to who you know, has a safe storage box for their gun and uses it for responsible, responsible means. It's this, you know, creepy white guy who has like 50 guns and is using it to shoot people up on the subway. Like you're not going to get over that kind of disdain. And, um, 
So I think we're, we're having less and less interaction with people who have a different viewpoint than us on this issue. And that is going to continue to exacerbate this divide. And I think it's, it's not just a cultural problem, which it is. I remember, um, you know, Barack Obama got caught on tape saying people are clinging to their guns and religion. And that, that, was bad. That was probably the low point in that campaign because it showed disdain. Yeah. Contempt for, for contempt Americans. Yeah. For, you know, for folks who um, don't just live a different lifestyle. Like that was bad, but it's also bad policy wise because the only people writing these gun bills are Democrats and most of them don't understand how guns work. So like people will talk about, oh, we should ban semi-automatic weapons. Semi-automatic does not mean assault rifle. Right. Yeah. 70% of guns in this country are semi-automatics. Like if you don't know what you're talking about, you can't regulate it appropriately. (laughs) So I just think, you know, that happened in New York uh, um, in a big way because it came to magazine cartridges. And just one other thing politically though, where I could be proven wrong is that don't forget that the Supreme Court is supposedly going to come out with a ruling um, towards the end of their session on a challenge to New York's concealed carry laws. And the state legislature has not done anything. Like the New York state legislature did something to firm up the state's right to protect a woman's right to choose to have an abortion in case Roe v. Wade was overturned. There's been no changes to the laws um, to firm up New York state laws that would prevent people from, you know, you could come up with a litany of excuses to prevent a lot of people from being able to conceal a a weapon, carry a weapon rather. And maybe if you took the Supreme Court decision, which will, if it goes to New York and people are all of a sudden allowed to carry concealed weapons without, you know, needing a permit from, from, the municipality, that is beyond a game changer. That's one of the most frightening things I can imagine for our country, frankly. That's so true. And I think the, uh, the prospects of that are 110%. Like the, the New York state law or the, you know, New York concealed carry law, it will not be upheld by this Supreme Court. So it will be struck down. And to Susan's point, they've done nothing to prep for what's going to be in its wake. Nothing. Here's the quote. Uh, that CJ pulled up for us just to round out this segment. This is Andrew Hayes, White House. Uh, Your gun control position doesn't have anything to do with public safety, and it's certainly not about personal freedom. It's about you don't like people who do like guns. You don't like the people. Think about that the next time you make a joke about the South. On Tuesday, the Labor Department released their monthly report on the Consumer Price Index and saw that inflation hit 8.5% during March, the fastest 12-month pace since 1981. And I will uh, reprise my notes uh, briefly on the CPI. Uh, If you haven't heard it before, you need to understand that the CPI is a measure that is manipulated by... um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, and it is supposed to represent a fixed, the, the co- it's supposed to be an index. What is an index? An index is an average of a bunch of numbers, right? It's an, and it's meant to measure something meaningful. And the thing that the CPI is meant to measure is what is the cost of these things, this fixed basket of goods that it could, they call it. For a long time, the basket was in fact fixed. All the things in it were fixed. But sometime in the early 80s, they started to manipulate that basket by pulling things in and putting things out um, uh, that 
you know, if something got expensive, they'd pull it out of the basket and substitute in something that was less expensive. And they did that in order to keep the price, keep that index as low as possible because the government doesn't want you to think that the inflation is going up. It's just bad. It's just a bad look for anybody who's in charge. Um, so the CPI, when you read it and you see 8.5%, which by the way is even faster than expectations for this latest report, you need to understand that that is the lowest possible calculation that the Bureau of Labor Statistics could come up with. And, um, and we'll, maybe we'll unpack that a little bit further on, but that's also excluding housing prices and energy prices, which, um, doesn't which if you leave those out of the basket, you don't have a real idea of what things cost, how much it costs to live in America. And that's why I don't think it's a very useful number, but it's the number that everybody uses and it's kind of tradition that that's how we measure what is inflation right now. So the surge in gasoline prices added fuel to the fire of strong demand and pandemic-related supply shortages. And because of the sharp increase in gas prices, the Mortgage Bankers Association is now projecting that overall mortgage originations, including refinancing loans, will total $2.58 trillion in 2022, which is a decline of 35.5% from 2021. Why are we talking about inflation? Again, because it feels like this is just a thing. Most people see news about inflation and it's, oh, more bad news. Inflation's still going up. Okay, yes. However, I kind of think of this like... um, the, the 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 news coming out about this, I think of in the same way as the news that was coming out about COVID, which is that it is going to take a long time and there are going to be inflection points along the way. And every piece of news is meaningful. At the end of March, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas warned that there were signs of a brewing U.S. housing bubble because of multiple factors, including rising home prices, rising labor and raw materials costs, uh, supply chain issues, and the cost of credit to access it. Now, uh, this hot market isn't the result of excessive borrowing in the way that it was in 2008 when we had that mat, like the global economic collapse, which was due largely to overborrowing. Um, and that's because the 2008 crash uh, had tighter lending standards. Since, since the 2008 crash, th- there are tighter l- lending standards and new regulations that make it less likely for borrowers to default on their loans. But now economists are worried about a different issue which is that prices might be rising to a point they call exuberance, which is, uh, which is you know, euphemistic to say the most. It means they're really, really high and way too high, which means that housing prices might become increasingly out of sync with the fundamentals underpinning the market. That's a, that's a long-winded way of saying bubble. So buyers might believe that prices will continue to climb and fear they'll miss out on a lower price now that, you know, that they'd pay in the future which drives up prices and increases expectations of future prices even further. It just feeds on itself. So um, I, want to, um, I want to turn the gem a little bit and look at this problem of inflation through the lens of homeownership and the, and the real estate market and the difference between people who own homes and people who don't own homes. And I want to think about the politics of this going into the midterms. So we've talked on the show about how consumers are being hurt by rising prices and how that's going to affect voter behavior. And really, it's more about how they interpret those those headlines, Um, you know, how they rank the issue and who they're going to blame if it doesn't get better before November. But I want to think about how how a runaway housing market or even a correction or a crash might affect the dynamic differently. So, Susan... (laughs) 
there's a lot of numbers here, but I think it's important that we talk about this because it is this in the phenomenon of inflation is one of the biggest things driving the way people uh, think about politics now and who they're blaming for it. I'm open to any thoughts you have, how you want to read the political tea leaves on this. But one thing that comes to mind is how this effect uh, essentially widens an already extreme wealth gap because homes are assets and 65% of Americans have a home, own a home. And as prices skyrocket, those people are seeing their at least nominal net worth rise. Renters are not, they don't own, and they're paying higher renter prices. And this just exacerbates the wealth gap. And so anyway, I, I wonder what you think this is, how that's going, that impact is going to be felt across the board going into going into now, but going into November, if it doesn't get better. Sure. So someone wanted to ask a question on a poll. Do you think Joe Biden is spending too much time on Ukraine and should be focused on fighting inflation at home? What a loaded question. You can't, the president cannot control inflation. So (laughs) (laughs) right there is, is something that politically is a, is a really hard thing to do because you can't say the president's not a strong enough leader to fight inflation. And yet the truth is he, it's, he can't. It falls more under to the Fed, which is now looking instead of raising interest rates by a quarter pro- of a percent is probably looking at half a percent uh, in May. That being said, the one thing I keep hearing over and over as I'm listening to focus groups and, and reading polls and such is that there's so many people, even in this economy, even though they're what they're, they're making more, they know they're getting less for their dollar. But what kills them is that there's no, they can't buy homes. They finally feel like maybe I'm back on track and there's nothing in the housing market going to houses being priced out of their market. And these are, I would say, lower middle class, very much working blue cast families that feel like they they want to be part of of the American dream, if you will, but they can't even afford to buy a house because the prices have gotten astronomical. Well, who's in charge of the government right now? Democrats. I'm not saying blame them. So all the listeners out there, it's not the Republicans saying, oh, blame the Democrats. I am saying that who that is who gets blamed, just like if it was the Republicans in the same situation, they would get blamed. The people in control get blamed. It is such a big issue that needs to be addressed. And one way we saw that was in dealing with COVID and rent relief money for those hit hard by COVID. Like for example, in New York state, there's a lot in California, people were renters and they needed, they needed relief money because they couldn't pay their rent because they, there was, there were things in place for homeowners, but not for renters. So there is that sense of a, a gap between homeowners and, and renters. And that is becoming more and more relevant as a wealth gap, but politically, I'm not sure what can be done except to talk about what you're doing now and and frankly act like Republicans and pretend you have you're so, you're solving their problem. You don't know you don't know I'm solving your problem but I am solving your problem and here's what I'm doing even if it doesn't necessarily affect you know everyday uh people. For example, you know the president decided to release our strategic oil reserves to fight fight gas prices. Yeah, it's a nice thought. It's great. It's great PR and he should have done it. It doesn't solve the problem, but at least he can say I'm working to solve the problem. 
Over to you, Monet. I mean, I am not an economist, and I've been reading a lot about inflation and talking to a lot of voters about it for uh, for the past few months and basically since the fall. And I think the the thing looking back at, you know, we're all so afraid of, you know, a repeat of the 1970s. We don't want to be there. Um, the the more I read about this and talk to voters about it, the more I feel like inflation is kind of a gestalt, not a real thing. Right. It's like I feel like things are getting more expensive. Well, wages are also going up, but you don't really remember that. Or as I just heard somebody say, you think, oh, I earned that wage increase, <laughs> but prices are going up. And you're like, well, actually, those two things are completely related, but you're going to take credit for one and not the other. So I think it's it's really about how people are feeling. And, and you know, that then infects everything. And I agree with Susan on the point that Democrats are in charge, but it's actually even worse because Democrats have had a historic um, economic trust gap. People do not believe that Democrats know what to do on the economy. And even when Joe Biden won the election, uh, Donald Trump was still more trusted on the economy. We haven't fixed that economic trust gap. It was just that people were like, and also he's a crazy person and there's a pandemic and I need somebody who's a grown up to be in charge. If there hadn't been a pandemic, maybe Trump would have won re-election because he did have that underlying um, support on his ability to handle the economy. And Joe Biden never did. And Democrats never have. So we start with a trust gap. Then you add, um, you know, people seeing prices go up, which is just like very visceral. You see it every single day. Um, your wages go right into your bank account and you only see them, you know, every two weeks, every month. But this you see day by day, multiple times a day. And so you you have this feeling that something wrong in the economy. Well, Joe Biden has created more jobs than I think any president in history, right? I saw a poll yesterday that said two-thirds of Americans think that we are losing jobs right now. Like, that's just factually inaccurate. Right. It's yeah. not the case. We have a huge roaring economy, and the reason inflation is, um, is happening is because the economy is so hot. So the the good thing, I think, is that we have learned a lesson from the 70s where we let it go on too long, my understanding is, and then we uh, and then we pulled it back really fast. And that part was extremely painful to people. It put us into a recession and it was really, really painful. So now we have a chance to get ahead of it. And so the Fed is doing these actions that will hopefully, you know, bring the economy down a tiny bit. I'm. It's like your pasta water is boiling over and you're like, well, I still need it to boil, but I don't want it to go onto the stove. How do you bring it down? Um, and you so blow it, it's, you blow on it. <laughs> that is what my niece does. So yeah. that's, that's, it's a good strategy, but like that it, it, we don't want to turn the water off. We just want to have it more under control. And so I think that's that's the, the place they're headed. And what the Fed does to do that is raise in interest rates, which will then stop this kind of, you know, over-reliance on buying more and more expensive properties because it will be more expensive to get a mortgage. And and substantially so, if you look out over the um, over a 30-year loan, uh, one-point interest is a huge amount of money 
in on the average mortgage over that period of time. And so it, I, I think it like doubles your, um, your payment every month, which you feel right away too. So I think we'll, we'll see a little dampening of, um, the housing market from that for sure. And hopefully, you know, keep it at a slow boil that will continue to boil the pasta, but not, uh, have it boil over. Um, the other thing though, that I think might impact these housing prices is that we're sitting here in Washington, DC. And Susan's in New York, and we have a lot of friends in San Francisco and L.A., and housing prices are really crazy in these places. Um, And there is a huge wealth gap, as you noted. But in my parents' hometown, not so. And, you know, I was just in Detroit, and in Detroit, people who own houses aren't able to sell them because— all of the houses next to theirs are abandoned, you know? So there's different things happening across the country in big cities versus other areas and in smaller towns where people are leaving, the housing prices aren't going up like this. Um, And so I wonder, you know, I don't know what past COVID means. Like once we get past COVID, I no longer know what that means. But once we get into some sort of a, like, how is normal going to look, where are people going to want to live? And I've had a lot of younger folks who work for me move out to the suburbs, move away from D.C. entirely. Out of the big move cities. out of the big cities, move to smaller cities um, because of housing prices. Um, and maybe we have an increasing ability to do that and do these jobs from those places now. So um, that's my hope is we're not going to end up in another, you know, housing bubble-like situation um, that is uncontrollable like we did last time. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I just have to say, remember the housing bubble is, is a reflection of basically suburban house home ownership. That's where the that's where if you want to look where things are growing out of control and are not affordable, it's in the suburbs. Cities, urban areas are always been treated differently. There is that gap that we talk about. And yes, you know, you could talk about apartments in Manhattan, but that's not the real world. In most places where the housing, where the real fight for housing is and people are wanting to buy houses and they are out of the market is suburbia. And that's where, you know, again, you want to look at the voters. So what are they thinking? Like, oh, well, I still have to pay my mortgage on a house I overpaid for a couple of years ago, probably, because during COVID, everyone went out to the suburbs and eggs have increased by 50%. My gas is now over $4. Like, those are the harsh realities. Again, and and I agree with Lene, comparing it to the 70s is really just not fair to the Democrats because there was such a much more many things at play here um, with what's what has led to inflation. I mean, it's it's the money we pumped into the economy. It's a supply chain there. There are just a lot of factors that are just you're not going to explain to the average voters. As I always say, if you're explaining, you're losing. So you better look like you're if you're running for office, that you're just looking to fight it. And it's those fights that are happening in the suburbs especially for Democrats, that they're going to have the biggest problems because home prices are through the roof. Yeah, because you can't not have an answer. Okay, now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's uh, quickly talk about what we're watching. Lene, what do you have for us under the radar? So this is under the radar for probably most folks who listen to this podcast, but it's not under the radar on Fox News. Mm. Title 42. 
Okay. You may have heard of this public health rule that was put into place um, at the beginning of COVID that said, basically, if you have a legal right to petition for asylum or other status at our border, um, you're trying to abide by U.S. law and, and come into the country legally, we're just going to shut the borders down. Like, you're not, you're not coming in. It's a public health decision. Nobody can come in, even if you have a potential legal claim to do so. And the Biden administration has been pushed to lift that order for a long time. Um, We thought they were going to do it last summer. They didn't. They've been kicking the can. Um, And now they have kicked the can to May 23rd. So they announced a week and a half ago that they are lifting Title 42. And so what that means is we will start to process people's asylum claims again at the border, including the huge backlog of people that are standing down there. Now, this goes together with crime and all of these other things. Um, We know that the politics of this are going to be bad no matter what, because um, Republicans are trying to make Democrats out as chaos machines, right? There's chaos, there's crime in your cities, there's the uh, chaos at the border. And, um, you know, we, the courts were going to force Joe Biden to lift this order no matter what, because it's not an immigration policy. It's literally a public health order. But what they've done is is given Tucker Carlson six weeks to of talk course. about it before they do it, of course. which I think is worrisome and has also worried a bunch of Democrats um, that I work with on the Hill. And so now you're seeing this um, tussle between congressional Democrats who know that they're about to be handed a poop sandwich of, you know, politics and the administration whose hands are really tied because they're going to have to lift it anyways. So we've seen some of the battleground state senators like Mark Kelly come out and get in in with Republicans and say, we're going to block the lifting of Title 42. You know, there's others that are saying, and this is kind of where I fall, is we need a good plan for this because we need to get people in line and process their cases quickly and show me the plan. Let's get the plan in order. Now you've said it's May 23rd. We got six weeks to get a plan. Um, But it is going to be everywhere. And it coincides not just with the upcoming midterms, but also with what we always see in terms of the spring migrant surge. And and add to that a booming economy with lots of jobs, which draws even more people here. And so we're going to see a lot of people at the border. We're going to see a lot of coverage of this on right-wing news. But you also are going to see some Democrats that have to win tough races really struggling with how they deal with this because it is a, it, it is a hard situation to manage, you know, and and we had stopped letting anybody in. Now we have to figure out how to get that machine started again. It's not easy and it's going to be really, really messy. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. There's That's right. no good way out of that. That's right. Susan? Well, first, let me just say, Renee's absolutely right, because I've been watching Fox News like I have to from time to She's time. She's usually right. <laughs> <laughs> My job. Um, and they've been on it for a month before even Title 42, and now their heads are exploding with it. So I, I think that's a really good call. My look ahead is something kind of quaint. It's called the Electoral Count Act. Um, there had been talk about things moving around it. I actually think we may hit enough of a lull at the week after next when they come back that if they kind of fold it in with some COVID relief, like they, I think they're looking to get as many bipartisan things that they can get done um, in the Senate 
Congress. That uh, is. Yeah, Congress. I should say, and specifically in the Senate. Um, that's where it's happening. They, the big they. Well, the, the, yeah, the they, the them, <laughs> the us. Um, but I, I do think that there is some some potential that we actually may see that by maybe the beginning of May. Interesting. I'm um, very happy that um, Susan has decided that Mitch McConnell's pronouns are they. Them. <laughs> I was just so thinking. I like, am going to definitely if, lean into Congress's that. Congress's pronouns be just the, definitely the, Mitch the, McConnell is they them, the, and the, I will proceed as such. Really quickly, because uh, we got to flip over to plus, um, but I just want to mention I'm paying attention to a sort of a smattering of Bitcoin related things because I went to the Bitcoin conference in Miami last week, and. It was an experience. And let me tell you that there is there is a lot of formidable intellectual firepower within that community. There are some very, very bright people. And there are some other people. We'll just leave it <laughs> that way. But here's what here's what was interesting to me because I've I've been learning. I've been sort of learning and lurking in this community for a couple of years now, much longer than that, actually, but much more actively the last few years. And there's, um, uh, if you've looked at this space at all, you're immediately turned off by it. And that's because some of the loudest voices in Bitcoin anyway, um, are toxic. And there is a lot of misogyny and there's a lot of homophobia and there's a lot of, there's a lot of really gross culture um, that seems to be festering there. And that's frustrating to me because the underlying fundamentals of this technology, this monetary uh, revolution are actually fascinating. We're going to get to that properly on politicology. My intent is to elevate the conversation quite a lot. But I was wondering that I'd never been to a Bitcoin conference before. I went to the Miami one and it confirmed that a lot of that stuff is actually very real. There's a, there's a sort of subculture there. And Mike Madrid actually... Um, uh, we were talking about this on the phone and he was like, you know, it remind he wasn't there. He was at a different conference. Um, similar. Uh, he was like, it kind of reminds me of the very early days of the cannabis industry mm-hmm. when it was beginning to take off because you had That's this, right. because you had this huge and sort of very peculiar subculture of That's people right. who'd been operating, a, uh, you know, outside the bounds of the rules. Yep. And, and then it's met with a lot of, um, Money and institution and industry realize there's a lot of money to be made here. There's something, there's actually something here. And now you're seeing that clash sort of play out between the two groups. And what I think is, um, what, what I'm watching most closely is how this is affecting political attitudes toward Bitcoin, which most people do not understand, and especially most politicians do not understand. And, you know, my, my fear has been that it's going to be, um, uh, I think unjustly labeled the you know the alt right currency or you know yeah. I mean it's like some um, it, it, it's going to be tainted uh, in a way that's unfair to what's actually happening and so I have uh, been talking to some progressive um, Bitcoiners who are who are just bending over backwards to make the progressive case for. Bitcoin, and they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. One of them's a client, sci- a climate scientist. Um, they're they're just they're fascinating people, and they resent that this is like the this is the image that Bitcoin is putting out in the world, and I completely understand it. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm watching this very very carefully, and uh, yeah, and I think over time, you know, it, that that culture is going to have to change, and it's going to have to grow up, 
And I hope for Bitcoin's sake sooner rather than later. Anyway, um, all right, let's flip over to Politicology Plus. But before we do, where can everybody find you on the internet, Susan? At Del Percio S on Twitter. Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter, and you can read my brilliant colleagues, Kylie and Jim's report on thirdway.org. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.